Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Coach's Corner. This is Coach Andrew Porritz from Ingenuity Coaching. And tonight we're going to have a very, very different show than we have. Uh, first of all, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I can be found at myfuturecoach.com and on Twitter at twitter.com slash coachandrew. Tonight, my guest is Dan Orth. Um, Oh, sorry about that. I just had a little bit of a technical difficulty. Uh, Dan Orth is a record producer, a songwriter, and he's the owner of and CEO, CEO and founder of Lounge Renown Records. And tonight we're going to talk about Dan and his story and the music business today. Dan, are you there? I'm here, Andrew. Uh, great to have you on board. Thank you very much. It's a, uh, I'm uh, thrilled to be on your show today. Well, thank you. So I, I, you, you have a very, very interesting uh, career. And first of all, uh, you're, you're not a, a spring chicken, shall we say. You've that been around for a long that time. That is correct, Andrew. Yeah, I have a very interesting story, and and uh, when the listeners hear my story, hopefully I will be an ins- inspiration to to others, people uh, my age. So, so just to get a little bit of a background about you, so wh- how did you uh, come to the music business in the first place? Very good question. Okay, when I was a uh, a very young kid, I was uh, 1956. I was eight years old, and I heard a I heard an Elvis Presley song. The name of the song was that great Elvis song, "Don't Be Cruel." Mm. At that moment, when I was eight years old, I fell in love with rock and roll music. I just fell in love with that song, "Don't Be Cruel," and mm. other Elvis Presley songs. So uh, in my Schooling, from grammar school to junior high school to senior high school to college, English was always my best subject. So when I graduated from college, like a lot of kids that uh, go to college and then graduate from college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. Mm-hmm. But I entertained the thought of uh, of becoming a newspaper reporter journalist or a magazine journalist. I know I know that I would have been successful because English was always my best subject and from the time I was a little kid I remember I was in the fourth grade and it was myself and three other students mm-hmm. in that fourth grade class the teacher gave me and the three other students uh books to read because we were the best students in the class. Do you so remember any I, of the books you read, by the way, in that fourth grade class? I can't. I don't remember. Okay. I don't remember. But I'm using the, my fourth grade class as an example to to bring home the point that English has always been my best subject out of all my subjects mm. in my education. And so I've always I – always, I received a lot of B's, sometimes A's, in English, and was very good at creative writing, da-da-da. So that's 
why I thought to myself, okay, when I was graduate from college, maybe I'll be a maybe I'll be a newspaper reporter, newspaper journalist or a magazine journalist. Mm-hmm. But then I said to myself, I love rock and pop music so much, I'm gonna be a songwriter. And I never have regretted it. So what was the very first song you wrote? The very first song I wrote uh were some songs that I wrote myself, the words and the melodies. Uh, some of the titles were uh, uh, Hiring Hall Blues was one song. Another song that I wrote, uh, well, I actually collaborated on this song with another songwriter. It's called Mexican Slow Train, mm-hmm. which is autobiographical about a, a trip that I had made with a friend to uh, to Mexico. I, I I live in Oakland, California, Northern California here, and uh, so Southern California and Mexico aren't that far, far away. So I was a young man in my 20s, and a friend of mine and I had taken a trip to Mexico, and we were in Mexicali, and we had a choice of taking uh, either the fast train or the slow train to go mm-hmm. down to Mazatlan and Puerto Vallarta. So we ended up on the uh, on the slow train. It's a very interesting trip. And so that's where I came up with that song title, uh, Mexican Slow Train, which is a very, very good song that I collaborated on with another songwriter. So, okay, so we have Hiring Hall Blues, we have Mexican Slow Train, we have, okay, another song title of a song that uh, that I wrote on my own, uh, t- uh, the title of this song is... Uh, Julie T, which is an autobiographical song about a girl I was dating and a um, beautiful girl, and then things didn't work out. And I expressed the lyrics I expressed in that song was the the disappointment of uh, my relationship with uh, Julie T not working out. Then another song title uh, that I wrote. Uh, Around that time, uh, where I wrote the words and melody, a song called "Love Is Everywhere." Mm. So that's another song, original song title of mine. Uh, Do you know so that? that uh, and then I have other from from around that time. I have other titles, uh, interesting uh, interesting titles that uh, that I would really I'd mm-hmm. have to tax my. <laughs> A little okay. bit, but that gives you an idea. I'm just curious because uh, when you, you're talking about this woman that you that you that you uh, had feelings for and you wrote about it, don't, do you find that uh, that tr- you know the tragedy of love is one of the greatest inspirations for music? I wouldn't say. Well, well, no. I'll answer yes because there's. It's not for me. Mm-hmm. For me, as a songwriter, it isn't that subject. You know the, uh, you know love and the, you know uh, love. You know, I mean, I know, and I know it is for, uh, for you know, there have been so many songs written on that subject. You know, and including hit songs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, which is which has been has been a very <laughs> well covered subject. For, but for sure. me, as a songwriter, that's not my that's uh. not my favorite. Uh, it's not my favorite subject. When you but. when you talked when you spoke about that particular song, it made me think of, for example, Adele, 
who's had this brilliant career based on really her her, her breakup. Like he, she had had an whole I, album. I'm of familiar breakup. with her, the young British girl. I'm familiar yeah. with her. Yeah. Well, you're right, and I know. I think I know. I can't think of the title of the song that you're talking about, but it's uh, it's it's about romance. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the whole album is came from a, a, a bad, a, not 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 a bad romance like Lady Gaga's bad romance, but uh, a, a romance gone bad that turned into a whole album. So I, I just made me think of. Oh, so that's uh, that's very yeah. interesting. I had no idea because I don't have Adele's uh, album on CD, and I mm-hmm. so I didn't know that that that's the whole concept the whole subject matter of the album. Yeah, I, th- very, I mean, I haven't listened to more than a couple of songs, but I remember her talking about it. I've heard her t- speaking of it, and that that was what inspired this album and it made it such a powerful album. And here you have, uh, you know, your, one of your earliest songs came out of out of a, you know, a heartbreak, really. Right. I guess we we can we can define it as that because she was uh, she was so beautiful. Julie T was so beautiful. Mm. She was like a uh, like a uh, a dream girl, mm. and it uh, that got away. <laughs> which look, looking back on my life auto, autobiographically, uh, the dream girls were always the toughest ones to uh, to hold on to. <laughs> and oh, so yeah. uh, lyrically in that song, I remember the, the lines, the lyrical lines that I wrote expressing my sadness about losing Julie T, but it always works out this way. The girls that I want get away, while the girls I don't care for would love to have me forever more. Yes, I remember. Okay, we got a little singing snippet now out of you. That's great. I, yeah, I, I haven't sang sang that song in a long time, and <laughs> I hope it I hope it was all right. But I I think I can sing it better. <laughs> oh, that's okay. <laughs> now, so, who who sang your songs? Actually, that's an actually another question. Oh, that's a very good question. Okay, who sang my songs? Mm-hmm. Okay, the year. Okay, I became, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, at the time I graduated from college, and I said to myself, okay, I'm going to become a songwriter. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I had uh, a very good friend of mine at St. Mary's College in Moraga, which is a Catholic school here on the uh, in Northern California. Mm-hmm. He was just a, a dynamite guitar player. And he had – Tim was his name, and Tim gave me my first guitar lessons. Mm-hmm. And I had my my parents had given me guitar lessons, but it was a completely as a young kid when I was like uh, ten years old. That's Hawaiian guitar, which is the same thing as pedal steel guitar. Oh, where you, right. Where you have picks on your right hand, and then you have a bar on your left hand. Of course, that pedal steel guitar is very popular in country music. Mm-hmm. So I knew how to play. And it's also called Hawaiian guitar. and uh, But I never had learned to play regular guitar, so that's interesting that when I was at St. Mary's College, a junior there, after transferring from a two-year junior college here in Oakland, mm-hmm. uh, one of my new and best friends at uh, St. Mary's College in Moraga was a just a dynamite guitar player. And so I had got that guitar, that same guitar that uh, 
I went home at my parents' house, picked up, got that guitar, and put some steel strings on it. And uh, my uh, buddy Tim had given me my first guitar lessons on uh, on regular guitar. So I I actually took up the instrument regular guitar mm-hmm. uh, much later than a lot of guitarists take up the instrument. I so I I was a junior in college, so I was like. Uh, like uh, 20 years old when I first started learning uh, regular guitar. But do you remember? Um, uh, oh, now the guy's name just went out of my head. Um, the very famous uh, singer uh, Kenny Rankin. Remember Ken- Kenny Rankin? I, I, cert- that name certainly rings a bell. Yes. Uh, singer, songwriter, uh, phenomenal singer, and actually a phenomenal guitar player. And what's really interesting about him uh, is he didn't start playing the guitar until, I think, his late 20s. And he completely I'm, I'm taught sure, himself. Now that, uh, I'm sure glad you told me that, uh, Andrew. I had no idea, so I'm not alone. No, you're not I'm alone. I'm not alone. Where he actually, here I started playing regular guitar at 20 years old, and he didn't even, st- Kenny Rankin didn't even start uh, learning to play guitar in his late 20s. Yeah, if I'm remembering uh, correctly, that's, the age. That's a but very, I very interesting very story, interesting and I, yeah. I, and I believe you that you said that uh, he's a great guitar player. Oh I, yeah. I remember him very much as for his hit songs, and his got a really nice singing voice, and he's a really good recording artist. Mm-hmm. I, I really can't remember his guitar playing, but now that you've mentioned this to me, I'm going to. Uh, Look him up online and on YouTube videos, and and pay attention to his guitar playing. So he played guitar in a lot of his songs, huh? Uh, yeah, and and uh, if you, I don't know if you know the song "Undone" by the Guess Who. I'm very. I love the Guess Who. I love the, the song, Guess Who. You know the song "Undone." She's come undone. Oh yes, that absolutely. Yeah. And, yes, um, yes, 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 yes. Really I, interesting. Guitar work. Uh, Randy Bachman from who eventually had, was Bachman Turner Overdrive was a guitar, the guitar player for the Guess Who, and that's a very jazzy, jazzy little piece of guitar work. Turns out he had listened to a Kenny Rankin's uh, song, an early Kenny Rankin song, that um, made him want to learn those kind of changes, and he then he did, and he created that song based on what he was listening to. Very interesting, Andrew. So he was so uh, Randy Bachman, the great Randy Bachman, who's a great, great guitar player. Oh, absolutely. With uh, Randy, so he was very much in, influenced by Kenny Rankin's guitar playing. That's very yes, interesting. That very so? interesting story. Hmm. Now we got sidetracked a little bit, uh, Sorry, Andrew. Man. You asked me, <laughs> okay, who sang my song? Who sang your song? That's a very good question, which I which I'm now going to answer. Okay, okay. I am what I've, I am what we call a home musician. Where I'm a guitar player and I sing to write songs, mm-hmm. and I also play harmonica. I and I play tambourine, mm-hmm. maybe a few other things, and. Uh, so I'm like I, I call myself a home musician. So me as a songwriter, I have uh, since the 1970s I've had some good uh, re- re- recorders. Mm-hmm. Good some good recorders. Uh, right. 
reel-to-reel cassette uh, tape recorders, and so I would uh, record my original songs with these tape recorders. Right. Okay, so, but 1978 was a very exciting year for me, and so I had, and this was not the first time that I had, uh, in networking and seeking out collaborators, other songwriters, and uh, at that time I was looking for, like, uh, singers and recording artists to work with at that point in time Mm -hmm. in 1978. So I ran across a guy, his name is Phil Phillips. And this Phil Phillips, incidentally, is not the same Phil Phillips who recorded that that great song, uh, See a Love. That's not the the same Phil Phillips. But this Phil Phillips is just a phenomenal singer, guitarist, songwriter, recording artist, performer. Phil is a little bit older than I am. So in 1978, in my networking pursuits, just talking to people, other songwriters, musicians, etc., I ran across a guy who was uh, attended Cal Berkeley, which is very close by here in Oakland. Berkeley is mm-hmm. right next to Oakland, you know, the famous Cal Berkeley campus. And Armando Cesarini was his name. He put out, uh, he had just graduated from Cal Berkeley, and he put out this flyer called the Progressive Musician. So hmm. I put my ad in there that I was looking for other songwriters and preferably singers and recording artists. So Phil Phillips answered my ad. So that turned out to be a very, very exciting thing. And a very interesting thing about that ad that I placed in Armando's Progressive Musician I wrote in this little, in my ad that I had been at the famous, I had been to the famous Automat recording studios in San Francisco, mm-hmm. and I walked in off the street. So it was, a, it was quite an accomplishment for me just to get in the famous Automat recording studios in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I in my ad in the Progressive Musician I wrote that I had Jeff Cohen who worked with uh David Rubinson who owned the uh, Automat recording studios I had uh I had Jeff uh read some lyrics that I had written him at that point when I was first got into the Automat I didn't have any uh, of my songs completed songs on uh, like cassette tape with me to uh, to play anybody at the automat, but I had just had some lyrics, and so uh, so Jeff loved my lyrics, and uh, so the reason I'm telling this story is when Phil Phillips answered my my ad in the Progressive Musician, he took the bait that I was in in my quest to try and attract some really talented singer songwriter. Recording artists, performers, mm-hmm. that automatic worked. Me listing the fact that I had, I was let into the automat just cold off the street, and so Phil picked up on that. And talking about the the automat recording studios in San Francisco, which at that time was the hottest recording studio in Northern California, 
David Rubinson owned the studio, and David Rubinson had, uh, I'm sure the listeners out there, this will ring a bell to people, he was uh, instrumental and managed Tower of Power. Oh, yeah. The famous funky Tower of Power right Mm -hmm. at the beginning. And then he worked with uh, Carlos Santana, and Santana, who recorded the Automat, he uh, David uh, was the uh, conceived the Chambers Brothers really? and managed the Chambers Brothers. That remember they had that hit song in the psychedelic era that the early was late sixties, early seventies. Time has come today. Yeah, that's yeah, so yeah, yeah, scare yeah. me. By the okay, way, okay, and then and then uh, okay, and then at the Automat Studios, uh, I'm sure this will ring a bell with uh, listeners. Uh, the famous uh, singer-songwriter Phoebe Snow, mm-hmm. who did that great song uh, "Poetry Man," she right. recorded. She recorded at the Automat. Then we have the Pointer Sisters. David managed at one point. At that point in their career, David managed the Pointer Sisters. And I remember when I was there at the Automat Studios in San Francisco, and I looked at the uh, gold and platinum uh, records hanging on the walls, there was a uh, billboard chart, and it had that song, uh, the Pointer Sisters, Bet You Got a Chick on the Side. And that was, and it was way up on the billboard charts, and that was, David's David Rubinson's Pointer Sisters. So that gives you an idea of the uh, the famous Automat recording studio. Is the Automat still there? Uh no, it isn't. Uh-huh. What happened in at some point in the 1980s, David Rubinson ran into some financial difficulties. One of the problems was the fact that uh, some of the clients didn't pay their bills for their recording time. Uh, when they recorded at the Automat, mm-hmm. including, I, I heard the story, I never did find out the name, but I read it in the news, local San Francisco Chronicle, maybe a magazine here in Northern California, including a big-name uh, recording artist and didn't pay his bills for his recording time there at the Automat. And uh, so David Rubinson, very unfortunately, he... Uh, Got into some financial difficulties, mm. and uh, and then some. I believe it was some tax problems with the IRS, and so mm-hmm. unfortunately, he had to give up the uh, the famous automat. No, was, was this in the eighties that he gave it up? Uh, I'll take a guess that it. Yes, I, it was. It was in the decade of the eighties, somewhere in the eighties. I don't think it made. I'm not absolutely sure. But I don't think the Automat made it into the 90s. I might be incorrect. We could look that up online. Well, you know, the ironic thing is, you know, when I when I hear the term Automat, uh, I'm sure a lot of other people of a certain age will, I think of the New York uh, Horn and Hard Art Automat, you know, the, the food place where you would get the automated, uh, semi-automated food. I don't know if you're familiar with that. that. Uh, oh, I, I, many, I many just movies. learned something. So in... Uh, in the Big Apple in Manhattan, there was a uh, uh, fast food place or a, or a restaurant uh, called sorts. the Automat. Huh? There was a, there were like luncheonettes or places where you get a, you know, a lunch or dinner, and you would put in a you know a, a nickel and get a, a sandwich. In, oh, like or in vending machines. machines. And uh, so that's why it was called the Automat, I bet, because it was like yeah. that. 
Now, you ironically, could suit all your needs wherever you wanted by just putting coins and vending Pretty machines. much. I mean, they had people who would put food in behind these things, and they had some servers who, you know, who would come around, and I guess certain things they would do, take your plates away. But everything was done by your know, machine, and then they had a coffee machine. It was very, very nice, and, and not a not a, like an upper upper class thing. But a lot of people went to them, and ironically, the automat and the, the very last automat went out of business uh, in the late uh, middle or late eighties. Oh, that's very interesting. So, in the Big Apple in Manhattan, New York City, uh, there was that. That famous eating place, the automat, with the same name. Very, very yeah. interesting. Yeah, and if you ever uh, see the, the the movie with Marilyn Monroe singing uh, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, and I think it was actually the same title, wasn't it? Or was it another title? I remember that Marilyn Monroe song very well. She mentions uh, uh, the automat in in the song. In the movie. In the song itself, it's in the it's in oh, the song. Oh, excuse me, in the song. The theme song. Oh, and uh, diamonds are diamonds best are a girl's best I'm friend. I'm going to go to YouTube yeah. uh, sometime soon, and I'm good. Very interesting. Yes, very I am a font of useless information, Dan. You know that that's a very <laughs> similar thing that you and I have. We're like walking encyclopedias. Yeah. I love it. I love it, and uh, and talking about that. Uh, it's it's paying dividends for me because when I started my Dan Orth Facebook page, okay, now all the listeners out there know that Dan Orth O R T H has a Facebook page, and I that is how I met you. That's Andrew, right. Not that long ago on Facebook, and so it, and so Facebook. I just love Facebook and this networking. Here you're in. You have this blog talk radio show and mm-hmm. you are a rock and pop music walking encyclopedia I am. like me that's what I picked up about you because I believe it was on that great site from our Facebook friend Sherry Arm who has that great site called Sounds of the 70s I think that's where I ran across you uh, it could be although I was thinking uh, do you know Kevin Conway he was a radio guy in the in California uh, no, that's that. That name is completely foreign to me. Okay, he's in uh, Sacramento because I I know I'm on his page, and then we eventually also became uh, uh, Facebook friends. Um, so I couldn't. I know that it was something to do with music that we connected on. That you and oh, definitely, yeah, definitely. And you had uh, you had. Uh, Mention something about uh, a song or a YouTube music video that uh, that I picked up on. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that, uh, yeah. So talking about what we're talking about. Okay, so um, I'm happy to report that uh, on my Dan Orth Facebook, I have I now have 1,100 people from around the world. Uh, that subscribe to me, which I very much like because me being seriously involved in the music business, and I have my current record label, Lounge Renowned Records, and I have mm-hmm. my fabulous Patton Leva band, P-A-T-T-O-N, then Leva, L-E-A-T-H-A, mm-hmm. Patton Leva, and Dwayne Patton is the leader of our band. Ah, okay. I was wondering Dwayne, how the Dwayne name Patton. came about. He's the, he's the male lead vocalist of Patton Leather, 
And I love that name, patent leather. You know, it comes from Dwayne's from Dwayne's uh, from Dwayne's name instead of patent right. leather, patent sure. leather. And we That's do a lot of nice funk. Little, we do a lot yeah. of funk. So leather is like the funky way instead of leather. You know, right. leather. And so patent leather. The fabulous patent leather band is a hip hop, R and B, funk, and rock band. Which is very, very interesting. We we cover a lot of territory. And I've been working with Patent Leather now for three and a half years. Mm. And we've recorded a fabulous album of eleven original songs and three cover songs. And I'm very happy to report that I am a co songwriter on eight of the eleven original songs. And then me as music supervisor, a music supervisor is somebody that is in charge of song selections for recording projects. Right. I'm so happy about this that all of the musicians in the Fabulous Patent Leather Band, because they respect me and they showed their love for me, they gave me 80% creative control of each and every song selected for the album. And I that just meant the world to me. And at this point in time, myself being 64 years old, age is only a number, mm-hmm. the rest of my career, I'm really going to benefit by this. Because looking back on my career and working with other songwriters, singers, recording artists, musicians, everybody listened to me. But in a lot of cases, they didn't listen to me enough. So the point I'm making, the rest of my career in the music business, when I'm working with people, including young up-and-coming singer, songwriters, recording artists, performer, they're going to have to listen to me a lot closer, or I'm, I'm going to tell them, hey, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have to do this song. You're gonna have to do this song, or I'm not working with you. Right. And that's a very important point because talking about what I'm talking about, okay, like since 1978 when I got together with the great Phil Phillips, singer, songwriter, recording artist, performer, who is just a very very talented guy, and then. Uh, we co-wrote 17 great songs together, so we always had those songs. And when I was working with Phil, we had a two-fold goal. One of the goals was for him to get signed to or the Phil Phillips Band, our band, the Phil Phillips Band. One of the goals was to get signed to a major record label. Right. And there, were, there was more than one major record label that was interested in signing us. But uh, close only counts in horseshoes, and it was uh, it was utterly devastating, very devastating, yeah, sure. and uh, heartbreaking. Where these major record labels, who should have signed us, mm-hmm. should have signed us, they they cost themselves lost a lot of money. They cost Phil and I a lot of money, and our our careers at that point in time in like uh, 1978, 1979, right. 1980, when they were interested in the Phil Phillips band. Mm-hmm. So there's that part of that story. But the twofold goal, okay, so 
I accomplished, it was a very exciting time for me in 1978, me being a very serious songwriter, when I got together with Phil Phillips and we wrote these 17 songs together, they just weren't good songs, they were great songs. So that was, so I, I accomplished that goal, that was very, very exciting for me, to accomplish that goal to write, co-write, and record great original songs. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I would live uh, happily ever after. Boy, was I in for a rude awakening. But uh, but the other part of the two-fold goal, okay, so I have all these great songs that Phil and I wrote, and then I have songs that I've written myself. The goal was to have established recording artists and performers on major record labels perform and record our songs. So talking about that end of things, of the two-part goal, I've got a, I have a mountain of papers in my files, including from Elton John's publishing company in England, right? Rocket Music Publishing Company. That was a very exciting thing. The, the A&R man for Elton John, Bernie Toppin's publishing company, he was, he very much wanted to, to listen to some of our original songs. And I'll tell you how that came about. This is an example of the value of networking with other songwriters and musicians and singers, recording artists, etc. Uh, there was a guy right here in Oakland who had uh, he had found out that uh, Phil and I had started our independent record label, Hard Boiled Records, in 1979. I was just networking, and you know, through the grapevine and this and that, continuing to network. And so this guy told me, hey, you should send your record, your hardware record, uh, 45 RPM vinyl, side A, side B. Send it in to uh, Billboard magazine because they have an independent uh, record label section, and they might make the announcement. And so I was happy to see that they did make the announcement. So the A&R guy for Elton John, Bernie Toppin's music publishing company in England had – picked up a billboard magazine and saw that. And then when that announcement was made in uh, billboard magazine, it had the mailing address for hard-boiled records. So that's how that came to be. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting story. Uh, yeah, this is that, a very interesting that's story. That's your about first about, um, record company that you started? It's called Hard-Boiled Records. Yeah, yeah. but that was, a, that was your first one. First first one, and, and uh, Lounge Renowned Records is my third now, when I say my third, there's the second label called CBH3 Records, named after the late Carl B. Hope III. God rest his soul, Carl uh, passed uh, mm. like three years ago. Uh, I was executive producer of that five-song extended play EP for the for the compact disc for that project. So I, that was. CBH3 Records was was started and owned by the late Carl B. Hope III, but I was executive producer on that on that project. I'd like to ask you a question, Dan. Yes. Uh, well, you, now you started a record company. You said what year was that? 1979. Yes, Hard Boiled Records. Hard Boiled Records, and you started uh, a lounge renowned in uh, 2009, correct? Uh, 2009 or was it 2000? 
Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, 2009. Right. Know, that's right, Andrew. Yes, uh-huh. Okay, so I, I would like to get an idea. You know, the, the, we've had a lot of change in the world of music and records. What are some of the differences of starting a record company in 1979 compared to 2009, 30 years later? Uh, I think the most radical uh, change is the uh, the Internet revolution. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, with the demise of, because of the Internet revolution and the downloading of songs, and then the, which led to the uh, the closing of uh of all the record stores like Tower Records, Virgin Records, HMV, you know, all the major record change, major record change to go buy uh, vinyl records, and then you know, then vinyl died out, and then we had compact discs. So with the elimination of uh, the record store chains, not only in the United States but all over the world, I think that that. Uh, as compared to 1979 to uh, to the year 2009, that that is the uh, the most radical change. So would you say it's harder today? Now that is a very very good question, Andrew. Is it harder today for for record labels? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you one thing. The first my. The, the first, my first response to your very good question is, especially for independent record labels, right? It's not easy to be successful for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's not that way. It never has been that way for major record labels, but independent record labels, it's very, very tough for independent record labels to succeed. And in the history of uh, rock and pop music, uh, there's there haven't been that many independent record labels that have been successful. Right. But I'm very confident, and I feel very good about Lounge Renown Records for a number of reasons that uh, Lounge Renown Records is going to be successful. We're, we've been seeing the beginnings of success with with lounge renowned records uh in the since since 2009 when uh, I started the label so now today uh of course nobody really uses vinyl anymore except for uh DJs pretty much or or, or record uh, you know enthusiasts who still want them but uh and now I'm hearing a lot of people saying, "Oh, I never buy uh, CDs anymore." So, w where is in, in, in the record, which is now becoming a, a term that doesn't even mean what it used to mean? So, what, what what is music produced on now? Okay, that's another very good question, Andrew. Let's not forget that, like in the Target chain stores, mm -hmm. and then we have Kmart. That uh, thank God, record stores are not completely extinct. Yeah. So we can go all over the United States, including where you live in New York City, and go buy our favorite CD albums that we want to buy. So in other words, there's still from, uh, a market for physical music. Yes. Okay, great. Yes. And then aside from uh, – I, I used uh, – 
I use Kmart and Target as examples. There are other chains that sure. still do handle uh, compact discs in their music sections of the stores. But also, like here in Northern California, like on the Cal Berkeley campus, we have, uh, I guess we can call them the independent record stores that have been there for years. We have one called Amoeba Records, and then there's in Berkeley, and then there's an Amoeba Records in the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco. And then I forget the names of uh, some of the other uh, traditional record stores. So we do, st we still do have regular record stores, but greatly diminished. So in the music business, it's calling having product, right. or you're having product for sale, uh, you know, for the market. So what has radically changed, of course, is uh, what a lot of uh, music consumers, and especially young people, they'll download mm -hmm. their, their favorite songs off of uh, their computers. And then, uh, aside from just downloading their favorite individual songs, I think I'm correct on this. I've only been online myself, uh, been online, and what an education I've received, uh, like about two and a half years. Uh, so I'm going to guess that uh, like that uh, music consumers can can download an entire album, of course. Oh sure. Yeah. Right. Right. And I and now I mean I sometimes see there's also there's so much uh, uh, you know out and out and out theft of music. Uh, there's uh, you know YouTube, which they're always fighting to get these things taken down. But I just yeah, the other day I was looking uh, at some. Beatles related clips and I discovered somebody had put up the entirety of Abbey Road. The entirety in what format? On a in a in video that you in other words you would play it on YouTube and it would play the entire album for you. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. That that's very creative. Uh listening to viewing and listening to an album on a YouTube video. Yeah, I think it would just be like pictures or something, but but the point being that there's so much um and I'm glad that you mentioned that, yeah. Andrew, because now you've given me a brainstorm. I can do that with our uh, with our patent leather uh, treasure album sometime down the line. All right, that would be, that would be very cool. Yeah. So so thank you for uh, for mentioning that. You're very welcome. Speaking of uh, patent leather, patent leather, patent leather, yeah. patent leather. Yeah. Get the funky right. way. You should have leather. the uh, his opening actually be Patton Oswald, the comedian. I'm just kidding. Uh, oh, I, I, I'm not familiar with that. I, the reason I didn't laugh, I wasn't. Uh, I, I'm not familiar with that comedian. Oh, he's a, he's a comedian. <laughs> but I'm he's, uh, now. <laughs> he was on the King of Queens, I think, TV show. Um, so uh, you have great, uh, graciously given me a, uh, a a copy of one of his songs to play. Would you like me to play it? Oh, one of our patent leather songs? Yes, sir. Oh, please do. Yes. Please do. And this song was this song was uh, written incidentally by me and Phil Phillips. And Phil's real name is Donald Allen Phillips. Mm. And it's such a great song. I told Pat and Leather. As a matter of fact, what's very interesting about this song, Music for the People, uh I'm gonna quickly tell everybody how I met Pat and Leather. Okay. In my song in my song pitching career which I had mentioned a few minutes ago that was the twofold quest of, uh, of Phil and I and my careers hey get these songs 
covered by uh, by major label singer recording artist performers and I've got I came very close and and that rocket music publishing thing wasn't the only wasn't the only story I've got a mountain of papers of other uh, other big name uh, singers who are very much interested in our songs and that rocket music publishing th- thing was so close what happened the A&R guy kept playing the song for like about four months playing it around for recording artists pitching it to artists that he was working with but it was heartbreaking nobody picked up the song it was a beautiful oh, wow. song called it was a beautiful ballad that Phil had written called Just Another Habit and they offered us a very, very fair publishing deal where they would keep uh, 50% of the publishing, we would keep 50% of the publishing, and mm. da-da-da. But, uh, but talking, so in my song-pitching career, and I hope the listeners know what that means, that song-pitching is when songwriters, serious songwriters, want to, you pitch your songs to, to people, other people in the music industry and not just to the recording artists themselves, but mm-hmm. to their music publishing companies, right. their major record labels, their managers. If you can get a song into, like uh, like I used to do it with cassette tapes, you know, before uh, compact disc came out, and you know, in that format, and uh, get a song into uh, like a roadie at a, at a live music show or mm-hmm. a manager, or I got in my in the looking back from 1978 to the present, I've done it so many times, I, I've lost track, you know, being at live music shows. And I was, I was always successful in getting my package into somebody that was connected to the, to the recording artist I was trying to get the songs to. And uh, so I have done that so many times, I've lost track. So I was in Re- Re- Reno, Nevada in uh, late in December or early December of 2009, and I'm hanging out at this casino in Reno, Nevada, called the Pepper Mill, fabulous Pepper Mill Casino. Uh, Reno, Nevada is like a four-hour drive from uh, where I live here in Oakland, and, okay. and and Lake Tahoe's close by, and it's the High Sierras, and it's just a beautiful Reno and Lake Tahoe are just one of the most beautiful places on earth. So I always get up there a few times a year, and so. I'm just on a little vacation up there, and I'm hanging out, and I'm at the Prep Mill Casino, and there's this band playing in the lounge. You know, at gambling casinos all over the United States, there's always lounge lounge bands to mm-hmm. uh, entertain the gamblers. Sure. Right. So I'm hanging out there at the Prep Mill, and they have these TV screens all over the Prep Mill, and this... Uh, this band is playing, and I didn't know if it was like from a TV program or uh, if it was uh, if they were like playing a DVD of a band. I didn't know the band was actually playing there, but I asked one of the casino employees at the Pepper Mill, uh, "Where is this? Uh, is this band playing? Actually playing? I thought it was like from a TV program." And she told me, "No, they're playing in this in the lounge," and she. So she told me what lounge was, and I went over there, and these guys just continued to blow me away. I mean, they were just out of this world. And so I said to myself, I've got to, uh, I've got to talk to these guys. 
Right. And so me having done this so many times before, you know, since 1978, uh, being very experienced in uh, approaching approaching musicians and bands, I found this little this little short ladder that led up to the stage, and I mm-hmm. knew that when they took a break from their set that they were playing, they were playing 45-minute sets, that they would have to come off the stage off this little ladder. And so I just I made it a point to get there in, before anybody else got there. And it didn't surprise me that when, when they came off stage, there, were, there was uh, a few fans waiting for them that wanted to talk to them. But I, having been ex- very experienced in this kind of thing, I made sure that I was going to be first in line. So Dwayne Patton came off the stage, and then Jay Logan, my buddy, who is now my buddy Jay Logan, came off the stage, and then Mikhail Morgan, et cetera, et cetera. And I said hello to them. They were very nice. I introduced myself to Dwayne, and we exchanged business cards. And uh, so me telling this story, I thought of this song, this great song, Music for the People, which is the Dan Orth, Phil Phillips song. Mm-hmm. It would fit, just fits these guys perfectly. And then I had some other songs that fit them perfectly, and that's the reason that I approached them. I said to myself, geez, I've got to talk to these guys because this, I have some songs that just fit these guys perfectly. So uh, so that's the story I'm telling about uh, music for the people. Okay. And, uh, so they picked up on it, especially Jay, and so, so we made history here. So you're going to play the song now, Andrew? I'm going to play the song now. Music for the people. I should put on my my, uh, my DJ voice for this. Okay, we got music for the people here on KBTR. <laughs> <laughs> right. All, All right. right, Patton, that uh.
discography. He mm-hmm. didn't mention Hardball Records. I have no idea why he didn't. Well, that's, that's uh, and so I had to correct that, and I was so happy. That was I was so happy when I I picked up my I, I subscribed to uh, Guitar Player Magazine. I picked up the issue, and I saw my letter to the editor uh, printed in Guitar Player Magazine, public documenting that very interesting fact. Oh, that's great. Yeah, Thank I'm familiar you. with him. Uh, and I, I, by the way, I was a lead guitar player uh, growing up as in, in a you know, high school and college band, and I still play guitar today. Great, great, Andrew. Yeah. And so I just learned something about you. I had no idea you're a musician yourself. Oh, absolutely. I sing. Uh, my voice is in a movie that oh, you could great, rent. Oh, great, great. Are you also a songwriter? I'm not a songwriter. Every time I try to write songs, they come out funny, so I, 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 I don't do it. <laughs> Well, there's definitely a possibility that uh, you might want to work with uh, with some of my and our songs. Well, you know that would be uh, very interesting. I am uh, be very happy. You're open to, to it. Good, good. Thanks. You're open to it. I'm always open to new opportunities. So, so another and thing, talking about Joe Satriani. We, I just to I, let you know, we only have two minutes left in the show. Right. I, I have to. Here's, here's something very important to mention to the. Uh, to you and the listeners, this is an idea of how rough the music business is. Mm-hmm. Not only for songwriters, for musicians. Joe, baby, Joe Satriani, mm-hmm. did not actually make a living in the music business until 10 years after he worked with us with his big breakthrough album, Surfing with the Alien. Mm. Until then, he made his living as a guitar teacher. That was his day gig, just like I had a day gig for a number of years. Sure. I had a day gig, you know, paid the rent, you know, everything else. And so Joe made his living as a guitar instructor, and he was a guitar teacher for uh, Kirk Hammett of Metallica. Mm Mm-hmm. Steve Vai, okay, a guitar player for the Counting Crows. Uh, okay, let's see. There's another famous guitarist that it's the name's not coming to me right now, but there are other. There's another very famous guitarist. Well, you know what, uh, Dan, we we literally have about a minute left. So right now, what I'd like to do is have you uh, tell us where we can find you. At my Facebook, and I welcome the listeners out there to uh, Facebook message me, and then anybody that uh, mentions that they listen to the show want to be my Facebook friend, I have uh, plenty of uh, room for them. I'm not okay, anywhere great. near close to the 5,000 limit. And of course, your cousin Lava also has a Facebook. Okay. And then Lounge Renowned Records has a very nice website. Then we have three of our patent leather music videos on YouTube. The young man who films and produces our patent leather music videos is a movie director and a movie editor, Osa Kuhn, K-H-U-N. Dan, I'm going to have to, sorry, cut you off. We're down to our last 15 seconds of the show. I want to thank you very much for being with me here on Coach's Corner. And you can find me, Coach Andrew, on on Twitter at Coach Andrew, and at and at myfuturecoach.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Good night.